This is a preview of Episode 2 of Pop, Race, in the 60s, a new Slate Academy. This series is for Slate Plus members. To learn more or to sign up, visit slate.com slash popacademy. Hello and welcome back to Pop, Race, in the 1960s, a Slate Academy. I'm Jack Hamilton, Slate's pop critic and an assistant professor of American Studies and Media Studies at the University of Virginia. 1967 was, by almost any standard, one of the most momentous years in the history of popular music. In June, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, a landmark album that to many observers drastically raised the stakes of rock and roll music as a serious art form. In December of 1967, the great R&B singer Otis Redding died in a plane crash at the age of 26 just six months after he'd given a triumphant performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, which was one of the decade's most important musical events. Nineteen sixty-seven was also a year of astonishing beginnings in popular music. Among the acts who rose to prominence this year were Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Doors, Sly and the Family Stone, and many others. And yet the year's most momentous debut wasn't even really a debut at all. By the time a 24-year-old singer named Aretha Franklin began climbing the charts in stunning fashion during the early months of 1967, the relatively unknown superstar-in-waiting was in fact a music industry veteran. The Memphis-born, Detroit-raised daughter of famed preacher C.L. Franklin, Aretha had been recording gospel albums since her early teens. In 1960, at the age of 18, she'd been signed to Columbia Records by the legendary talent scout John Hammond. Columbia positioned Aretha as a smooth and debonair singer of bluesy torch songs and jazz-infused pop, an heir to the tradition of Dinah Washington. In the early 1960s, this market was known as, quote, easy listening. Between 1961 and 1966, Aretha Franklin released a series of albums for Columbia that were mostly commercial disappointments. And in late 1966, she parted ways with the label. Atlantic Records' vice president, Jerry Wexler, who long lusted after Aretha's talent, swooped in and signed her. Atlantic had the good sense to let Aretha Franklin loose where she'd always belonged, on the cutting edge of 1960s pop and R&B. In early 1967, Atlantic released I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, the first single from its recent signing. I Never Loved a Man soared into the top ten, the first of an extraordinary five singles that Franklin would place into the upper reaches of the pop charts that year alone. The most successful of these, Respect, hit number one and became one of the most famous songs of the 1960s.
By the end of 1967, Franklin had established herself as a singular force in American music and the most electrifying female singer of her era. In June of 1968, she even appeared on the cover of Time magazine under the headline, The Sound of Soul. On this second episode of our podcast series, we're going to explore Aretha Franklin's enormous impact on the landscape of 60s pop music. We'll open by discussing Franklin's emergence into superstardom, and we'll end the episode by taking a deep dive into her 1971 hit cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, a recording that often doesn't get as much attention as her more iconic late 60s music like Respect and Chain of Fools. But as you know, if you listened to the last episode, the whole concept of this series is to put two different songs from around the same time into conversation with one another. The other song we'll be focusing on today is by a singer who's less well-known than Aretha Franklin, but remarkably interesting in her own right, the white British pop and R&B singer Dusty Springfield. In 1968, at the height of Franklin's reign as the Queen of Soul, Dusty Springfield traveled to the States and recorded what stands today as her most famous hit, a beautiful and beguiling work of Southern Soul called Son of a Preacher Man. Interestingly enough, Son of a Preacher Man had been originally written for Aretha Franklin herself. I'll pause here to let you know that you can read more about Franklin and Springfield on our show page, which you'll find at slate.com slash popacademy. Joining me today to talk about this music is the great Emily Lordy, a scholar and cultural critic who writes about African-American literature and black popular music. Emily is an associate professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of two books. One is a terrific study of black women singers and African-American writers called Black Resonance, which was published in 2013. The other is a forthcoming 33 and a third book on the album Donny Hathaway Live, or as it's known in my house, the greatest live R&B album of all time. (laughs) That book will be out in November. If you don't have that album, buy it and then buy Emily's book or do it in the reverse order. Just make sure to buy both. Uh, And Emily is currently writing a book about soul, a subject that we will likely be discussing extensively today. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Good to be here. So just to start off, uh, I mean, a a huge question that we could probably spend hours just talking about, putting ourselves, you know, trying to put ourselves into 1967 at this, this sort of year of Aretha in a lot of ways. What in that particular context is the significance of Aretha Franklin? I mean, as from what I can think of, there'd never really been anything quite like her in terms of a pop phenomenon. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a black female vocalist who's totally steeped in gospel music and who seemingly overnight, though, as we noted in the introduction, it wasn't really overnight, but I think to the general public, it seemed that way, becomes basically the biggest star in American music that year. Yeah, so that's exactly what it is. Um, I mean... (laughs) To move from Aretha herself toward that broader context, um, you know, Aretha, as you said, she does kind of seem to come out of nowhere. Although, as you noted, that debut that she makes with Atlantic um, in 1967 is not really a debut at all because she's been um, a star of a kind of local gospel circuit since she's been a child, you know, growing up um, with her father, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, who is one of the most famous religious leaders really in the country at that time. But, you know, one thing I guess to say about Aretha, first of all, is that she is just 
extraordinary um, in terms of her ability to sing anything. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, she's a singer. She's a pianist. Uh, often doesn't get credit as playing piano incredible, and also arranging right? her own yeah. her own songs. Um, so she's really kind of in control. She's she's kind of telling the backup singers what to do. She, according to Arif Martin, uh, the producer Arif Martin, is kind of drilling them to perfection. So just an incredible all-around um, musician. Mm-hmm. In terms of the broader cultural context, you know, singers like Ray Charles and Sam Cooke, as we know, have already kind of paved the way for this sort of secularization of the gospel sound. Yeah. Um, but one thing that is unusual about her, I, I think in addition to her versatility, is the kind of authority, the moral authority, and the kind of social capital that she acquires being L. Franklin's daughter. Yeah, so, that's a great right, point. Um, the fact that he is very close companions with um, Martin Luther King and is working very closely uh, with him in various kind of activities toward the civil rights movement. Um, the black church is so important, as we know, to that movement, but so too is the idea that the energy that it kind of signifies the the sort of religious and communal energy that the black church signifies can now be moving out into the streets and into these different forms of collective action. So I think that that's one thing that Aretha really kind of embodies is that movement from the church um, out into this kind of secular mainstream moment. And especially once she releases respect, mm-hmm. Aretha therefore becomes in this cultural moment, like the voice of like four different movements at one time. So, yeah. you know, know, she can be the voice of civil rights and kind of appeals for a more integrationist type of change. She can be the, the voice of black power, right, which mm-hmm. is emerging at that particular time. Also the voice of feminism, both yeah, black and white absolutely. feminisms. And then just everyday people who don't necessarily even identify with any particular kind of movement um, can also really claim Aretha, you know, as as their singer. So the, the Detroit roots, the gospel aesthetic, and also that idea about kind of what it means to be black and proud um, and, and feminine, right, and kind of vulnerable. Um, um, in that moment, I think all of these help to account for her incredible popularity just within the United States in 67. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, though, sort of moving to a, a kind of broader question. So this the, the Time magazine cover story from 68. And you and I have had conversations about this. Uh, Aretha's on the cover of Time magazine in June of 1968. And the story is headlined The Sound of Soul. So Aretha's obviously being positioned as sort of the embodiment of this concept. And during the late 1960s, there was a tremendous amount of discussion about soul as a, as a concept, what it was, who had it, who didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I know that you've been working on a book on the topic of soul mm-hmm. and I just kind of am interested. I mean, this is such a, a weird and vague and interesting loaded term that we use so much in terms of right. talking about music. Uh, so I was sort of just interested if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what you think soul is and what you think it is in this specific moment. Like why mm-hmm. is Aretha right. in the late 1960s so crucial to this concept? And yeah, what what's our, you know, as listeners to American music, to black American music specifically, mm-hmm. what is soul? <laughs> that is a huge question. And but it's yeah, I mean, I'm so happy that you asked me because this is like all I think about right now. Um, so I guess the term soul, first of all, like you said, had been circulating for quite a while um, before this particular moment as a kind of marker of black particularity, um, African-American, like sort of indigenous African-American culture. So with the soul jazz movement in the 1950s, mm-hmm. um, we see that, you know, various artists sort of returning to the quote unquote church roots um, and creating this different form of jazz. Um, but 
in the later part of the 60s, Seoul really becomes um, a more kind of politicized, almost banner under which black people can unite. And as you know, people are very reluctant to define it. So we see that a little bit even in that crazy Time magazine article <laughs> yeah. with Aretha on the cover that, you know, that issue devoted to kind of trying to almost anatomize the sound of soul. Um, but a lot of people say, you know, when asked that if you have to even ask, then you're never going to know right, yeah. what it is, right? So it's this kind of... Um, there's this proprietary relationship that black people have to this concept and which only gets stronger, right, as white America starts to kind of wake up to the sound of soul and embrace singers like Ray Charles and Sam Cooke, which is the reason why there's a story about it in Time magazine in the first place, right? Is right, that this concept absolutely. of soul yeah. is kind of emerging into the mainstream uh, white American consciousness. So anyways, people talk about soul. Um, they're often saying, you know, if you even have to ask what it is, then, then you're never going to know. But one thing that they do often say, nevertheless, is that the concept of soul is tied to black suffering, mm -hmm. right? So tied to, to slavery, to this history, um, and, and the continuity of African-American oppression. And in that way, it's something that white people can't take. Um, but it's also a way of understanding or kind of rewriting black experience um, that almost tries to sort of uh, redeem it, right? And saying that this struggle and this this pain has a particular kind of expressive payoff, right? It, it allows you to sing soulfully um, or to, you know, be the best dancer, you know? And, and James Brown is somebody who embodies that idea because he, as the hardest working man in show business, yeah. is like out there busting his ass, but in so doing, creating this really transcendent and sort of culturally superior phenomenon that nobody else could could really touch. So the word soul starts to encode this story around this time, and it's about turning racialized struggle into a kind of culturally superior style, um, or what I call a kind of stylized survivorship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on, I guess on a slightly broader level, I think one reason why that's so important in this moment is because civil rights is, is going to soon um, kind of give way to black power. Um, we're going to, you know, of course, Martin Luther King's assassination in 68 um, is going to be an important turning point there. But it becomes so important for people to kind of envision how to get from this seemingly impossible here to some other better place. And so the idea that going through something is going to have this payoff, right, is, is only making you stronger, becomes really critical. Now, Aretha's music and the labor that she performs and the kind of intensity that, that she brings to her music really enacts uh, some of those concepts. So people can see that she's actually, you know, struggling through something, but through that, creating something beautiful. And I think that that becomes inspiring to people both on kind of personal levels and also um, on broader kind of collective levels. One of the things that's interesting about the Aretha article that's uh, rather notorious is that the article kind of famously exaggerated uh, certain aspects of her background or it, she claimed was was really kind of inaccurate uh, in a lot of ways. There yeah. was a, a lawsuit that she and her husband at the time brought against time for for the inaccuracy of that story. And mm -hmm. what's interesting about the story, I mean, and this gets into the kind of double bind of this of this concept, yeah. particularly in this period, like at the same time that it's celebrating Aretha and, you know, mm -hmm. it's just talking about, I mean, how incredibly powerful her music is. 
One of the things that it doesn't really go into is just the sheer craft behind it. You know, how much work she has put into becoming this great singer. It's like right. what it all ends up being is this sort of like, oh, you know, she's her music is beautiful because she's descended from slaves, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like this sort of like it's a naturalization almost. Um, yeah. And, you know, you listen to Aretha sing and it's like this is a person who I mean, I feel this way about Sam Cooke as well. Where, you know, there's just a complete mastery of the voice as an instrument. You know, it's like there's just everything. (laughs) There's such control, you know, whereas, you know, with one of the things with James Brown's performances is there's this Mm -hmm. performance of kind of abandon, you know, of like this kind of like by the end of it, he's just, you know, collapsed in the heap. And, you know, the, uh, you know, the capes being put around him, he's being led off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas with Aretha, you know, there's le- there's less of that kind of spectacular performance of yeah, abandon. I guess would be the the way to describe it. Mm-hmm. And there's not an unhinged aspect, I guess, of any of Aretha's performances. It's right. so controlled. Yeah, there's definitely not that kind of ecstatic release that we yeah. would associate with a James Brown. Yeah, she doesn't. I, I think that's absolutely right. She doesn't let go mm-hmm. in that way. Doesn't um, give up control or kind of let you forget that she's the one who's really in charge. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. To hear the rest of this episode, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash pop academy.